How are we doing, Steppers? This is your host, Dylan Tuttle, back with another episode of the Directed Steps podcast. Based on Proverbs 69, it says a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So you guys know the question. Would you rather be stepping in your own steps or would you rather be stepping in the Lord's steps? Today, we got a special topic and it's legalism. I'm here with my buddy, Jackson. Would you like to introduce yourself, Jackson? Yeah, my name is Jackson. I'm a good buddy of Dylan's here. We, uh, we go to the same gym as well as the same church, and so we've got to spend some time together and get to know each other. And um, so, yeah, I just built a friendship over the last six months or so. Yeah, so we met. I've had a bunch of guys come on from the, the church network that I'm a part of, and he's also part of that church network. And, you know, we've grown through that, but also, like, we've gone, like he mentioned, like, we go to the same gym. So, like, we just be talking about the things of the Lord all the time. And uh, we've we've gotten close over this past, like you said, like six months. So, as he mentioned more and more about his story to me and you know a little bit about his testimony, I think something that would have been great to talk to him about was legalism. Yeah, so you guys out there may be thinking, what is legalism? A resource that I personally like is gotquestions.org. If I ever have a question about the faith, they're a good source to go to. They answer pressing questions about you know Christianity and things of the world. And they define legalism as a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for the achievement of salvation and spiritual growth. So if I was to put that in my own words, it would be the prideful pursuit that demands control for our own lives instead of giving God the control for self-justification and self-sanctification. So here's an example. Let's say someone has a conviction that they don't like worship music with drums in it. I would argue there isn't a biblical support for the use of drums being inherently sinful. If this person were to say that they are holier than thou or more righteous or closer to God because they don't listen to worship music with drums in it, they want to argue that this is legalism. This person made a preference of their own style of worship into a law to think that they have earned God's love. But in reality, if we are truly in Christ through faith, we already have all of Christ's love. So to juxtapose that, on the other hand, someone can still have a conviction to not listen to worship music with drums in it. But since not listening to drums isn't a biblical principle, the correct way to handle this conviction is to just not listen to worship music with drums in it. Simple as that. But the difference is to not think that it makes you holier for not listening to the worship music with drums in it. A book in the Bible, actually, that strongly opposes legalism and emphasizes how we do not earn our salvation or spiritual growth, but it is by grace through faith that we receive salvation and spiritual growth is Paul's letter to the Galatians. I'll give you a little survey of the issue Paul was addressing to the church of Galatia. Being one of the churches Paul reached in his missionary journey, he couldn't be there to correct false doctrine as he was traveling from place to place, right? Because he's one man. This group of people rolled on the scene in the church of Galatia called the Judaizers, in which they taught that salvation required you to convert to Judaism first in the church of Galatia by keeping the Mosaic law as well as believing your justification is through Jesus as well. This began to influence the Galatian church. This is what caused Paul to write the letter in the first place, in which he had to reaffirm to the Galatians what grace through faith alone actually means and correct this false teaching. This is where we get verses like Galatians 2.16 that says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. 
for no one will ever be made right by God by obeying the law. And I think another verse that I find important in this book is chapter 3, verse 11, that says, So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The quote, it is through faith that a righteous person has life, is found in the Old Testament book Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, in which Paul uses this verse to bolster his claim that God has been the same yesterday as he is today in regards to faith being a means at which we have eternal life, not by our obedience to the law. So this is just an example in the Bible to show how legalism is not something that's new, and people have been struggling with this for a very long time. And as Jackson and I dive into this conversation and this interview on his story, we're going to get into some of those nuances of legalism. So Jackson, my first question to you is how did the Lord direct your steps to salvation, Jesus? I ask this to every guest, and I just kind of love to hear like, you know, a little two minute take on how did you come to know Jesus? Yeah, so I was introduced to Jesus pretty young through children's stories and biblical stories. I grew up going to church with my family. But to me, they're really never more than stories uh, to be a moral compass for you to be a better person. To me, really, what was important in my life were, were family and, and sports, especially football, which allowed me to go and play college football. In college, God really used football to direct me toward himself and pull me toward himself. They used a pastor and my head coach. The pastor reached out to my head coach to start a, a team Bible study. And he reached out to the whole team, inviting us. I told him, no, like, no way I'm going. My buddy actually went and he started inviting me, my roommate. Finally, I com he convinced me to go. And that was when things really took a turn because at that point when the, when the word was opened, it was more than just words on a page. It really started to, to speak to me and be more than that, that it wasn't just a book and it wasn't just stories. And so he started to draw me there. I mean, I started meeting with the pastor where he started addressing some questions that I had and really introducing me where I found out I'm a sinner and I need a savior and that savior is Jesus. Mm. So for a little context for the people out there that may be listening, you didn't get saved till you were in college, but you did grow up in the church, right? So what kind of church did you grow up in? Like what were some of the things, you know, that you associated with Christianity as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a Catholic church and so it was a little bit confusing for me whether like Catholicism was Christianity or not. To me, when I, when I looked at Christian churches, they were much more like modern and in the Catholic church that I was going to is a lot more traditional. For me, it was it was almost like I viewed Christianity as kind of like corny, honestly, <laughs> like, you know, people like raising their hands and singing and stuff like that. And, and the church in the, in the Catholic church was a lot different. It was a little more rigid. And I feel like being in it, I was almost scared to like step out of line or you don't want to be like the, the kid who's like being too noisy and and that stuff otherwise you get reprimanded but yeah i mean it's a lot different i appreciate you sharing your story with me man i think a verse that ties in this is romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus there was a point in time you were earning the wages for your death and doing your sin right but it wasn't until you accepted the free gift that god gave you through jesus christ being the only way that you can have that salvation so I guess my first question, you know, to get in this interview on legalism and in your own life story is who is Jesus to you as a kid and all the way leading up to college? Yeah, I think to put it in a good perspective is that like Jesus was a helper and he served me rather than I served him. I feel like that was what really was my viewpoint of him. 
but I also struggled a lot. I mean, I struggled a lot with really believing that he was real and he was true and that he was more than just stories and, and mm -hmm. never really heard the evidence for it. Growing up a big like science guy or mm -hmm. never actually hearing the evidence and supporting information that proves that Jesus is a real person, mm -hmm. lived on earth. And I guess then the question is, is he who he says he is? So. Yeah, that's really interesting how you talked about, you know, like the evidence for Jesus, like Jesus actually being a real person. The unique thing about Christianity is it's not just theological or a philosophical belief, but is a historical belief. We can rely on the New Testament scriptures about Jesus's existence, but there are also extra biblical evidence for Jesus and writings that go back to the early ADs, you know, after his resurrection. But it really doesn't make a difference until our eyes are opened. For me, I mean, like as a kid growing up, he was just a religious figure, right? I knew he died on the cross, but I didn't really know why. I kind of thought Jesus and I were cool because I was baptized as a baby. But it wasn't until, like I said, like 14 until I heard the truth about Jesus and why he had to go to the cross. I think the interesting thing is like, it seems like everyone likes the Jesus that they can put in a box and kind of make their own version of him, kind of like you said. But once you actually read about the real Jesus that we can't control and challenges us to live a life that is in complete opposition to our natural desires is when a lot of people are like, ah, you know, I don't know if I'm all about that or if I don't, I don't know if I like that because it forces us into a position where we have to submit and you're not the only one to get mad at Jesus for the way he lived his life. I mean, the religious and the legalistic people of Jesus's time were the ones that actually got him killed. The reason why I asked you this question, Jackson, in the first place is to get to this dichotomy of what people subjectively believe about Jesus through culture or upbringing and who we objectively know who Jesus was through the ancient scriptures that we have that has stood the test of time, right? Here's a good verse that holds to who Jesus was and is in John 1.14 that says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. A lot of good stuff to unpack here. Like the word referring to Jesus being divine in the Greek word logos. And Jesus having the same glory as the Father. But I'll focus on the latter part of it that says Jesus was full of both grace and truth. He told them the truth, but he was innocent and loving in the process of handling the truth with others. The reason why the truth bothers people so much is because it points out the flaw in our humanity. And we hate to admit we're flawed because we are prideful people, naturally. And because we are flawed, we are only justified through what Jesus did on the cross and submitting to the fact that none of what we did, we get the credit for in our salvation or spiritual growth. And that takes a level of humility, right? Which is the complete antithesis to pride. So this kind of goes back to how a lot of what is at the root of legalism is our own pride because we want to be right about everything, right? We want to be in control of how we put God in that box, or we want to make the rules so that we look like the good person, instead of actually taking the humble approach of admitting you don't have it all together. But Jesus does, and that's what we should be trusting in, instead of our own good works, or our own way of making ourselves holy. So that's kind of my take. And, you know, what I thought Jesus was as a kid and who we can objectively know Jesus as of the historical figure of Jesus. So, Jackson, my next question to you is what was your perception of your good works growing up in the Catholic Church? And 
how did that have a relationship on your faith? What did that make you think about Christianity? All that. Yeah, I think a lot of us fall into this category of, or can fall in this category of where we think that what, what, what God really wants is just for us to be a good person. And, it, and if we're good, then how can he how can he punish us? But he will definitely punish the bad people, right? So I grew up in a pretty moral home and my parents are still married. I got good grades growing up. I stayed out of trouble for the most part. So then from my point of view is, is then how can God judge me when there's much worse people out there? And why, why would, so why would he punish me? I really started to ponder heaven and hell and what it really meant to be good. Because from different point of views, I think people would disagree on who's good and who's, who's wrong. You think about war and how both sides probably think they're doing the right thing for their countries. So that was really challenging for me as a teenager. So when I started looking to God's standard of good, it was like, man, dude, I, there's no way I can live up to this. Reading his commandments, it's like, I've broken probably at least half of these, if not all of these. So where's my hope? How do I have any hope? I've already broken these, like I deserve hell. And I never saw Jesus as a solution it was always always my good works that maybe you're good or I'll wait you're bad in the end and you just hope for that. I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what you said, you know, how you said we default to wanting to be good people. We all don't really like to think about our wrongdoings as we do. And as humans, we do a lot of blame shifting, right? Again, it takes a level of humility to admit we're in the wrong. I think a lot of people say I'm good enough to get in heaven and they bring up this scale idea where they say their good works outweigh the sin they've committed in their life. But this is an unbiblical viewpoint. And if the Bible is true, this has serious implications for our eternal fate, right? And I'm going to show you why this is unbiblical. And I've talked about this concept a couple times in a podcast, but Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. That means our own righteousness doesn't please God. In fact, he sees our righteousness, our self-righteousness as filthy rags because our life is polluted with sin. It's like if I took some purified water and someone dropped some dirt in it. It's not worthy to drink anymore. Even though there was purified water in the drink, it is now not drinkable because there is dirt in it. it. Makes me think about when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler and what he said to him was, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then his disciples asked him afterwards, who in the world can be saved? What Jesus replied to in Matthew 19, 26, he said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible, right? We are only entered into the kingdom of God, not because of what we did, but because of what God did on the cross as God in the flesh. There's no longer the stress of, did I do enough or this sin going to keep me out of God's favor? Nope, it's not the thought process, right? It's God did it for you when you place your faith in him. We should be doing good works, but that isn't the way to God's favor. It is our faith that places us in God's favor through what Jesus did on the cross. So Jackson, next question is, what was the turning point of you realizing you were saved by grace through faith alone and not your own works? I know you said you had a pastor in your life who came through your football program that walked you through the verses, helped you realize you were a sinner. But was there any like nuance in that season where you were like, these good works I'm doing doesn't actually make me a good person? Yeah, meeting with the pastor and just, just reading scripture because you know, scripture is it's sharper than the, than the two-edged sword and it cuts to the heart. And so 
he brought me to scripture. He brought me to that verse, actually, Isaiah 64, in the filthy rags. And I think in the original meaning, meaning like menstrual rags, that was huge for me just hearing God's word because you can't argue with it. I feel like it's, it's, people will try to twist it and turn it, but God's word is there. It, it's, it's confronting. And that's what the cross is. We talked about earlier. It confronts another verse for me that was really changed things for me, I think, was Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these were religious people, which I thought I was as well, a religious, religious person doing good works, giving to the homeless doing charity work, things like that, being nice to people, opening doors or whatever. I wasn't casting out demons and prophesying in his name. I mean, these people did far better works than I thought I was doing at the time. And yet God still said, depart from me to them. So I knew that he'd say that to me because of, because I was trusting in, in my good works and not in what Jesus did. That was a really big turning point for me, just seeing that how God views our righteousness and he actually calls you a worker of lawlessness. And then the other verse was Romans 6, 23, which you talked about earlier. But it was really the scripture that changed it for me and changed my heart, knowing that it is a free gift of God. It isn't something I have to earn and work for, but I still want to live my own life. I was like, yeah, that sounds good, but I still can't give up on what I'm doing right now. I'm not changing for this. Mm-hmm. I remember stopping meeting with, with the pastor, doing my own thing still, just living the college lifestyle and everything. And God started to take those idols I had in my life away, the football, gone, friends, even women, just nothing. I felt alone. I felt lonely, depressed. And not that everybody has to go through this, but it was a huge turning point to me where I realized that these things weren't satisfying my heart. Mm. And I remember being in my dorm room, just realizing that this lifestyle that I've wanted to live, that other people tell me to live, It wasn't satisfying me. It wasn't satisfying my heart and my need. And what I need to do is instead turn to Jesus. And so I remember just being in tears, crying and just saying, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner and I want to turn to you and turn from all these things. That's awesome, man. I took a couple key points away from what you just said. I think the first thing was like how you didn't respond to what man said, but you responded to the word. And you you mentioned Hebrews, I think it's 4.12, maybe 4.15, somewhere in Hebrews where it talks about how the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit. Don't discredit what the word can do in unbelievers' lives. This is the word of God. This is strong enough to pierce through our souls and our identities to convict us about the life we're living. It wasn't until someone put that word in front of you to make you realize that your good works are, they're not good enough to save you, but it is only through the Son who will give you the eternal life. And then the second thing was when you brought out Matthew 7. And I think the interesting thing about that passage, and you know, this is something that I may have wrestled with a little bit, is like these people got to Jesus and they said, we did all this, but he said, depart from me, you never knew me. And then it clicked in my mind is that when they got to Jesus in judgment, they put their identity in their works for Jesus over their relationship with Jesus. Their identity was in their works. That's why he said, depart from them. They did great things in his name, but they didn't have their identity in Christ. And I do not want to get to heaven one day and say, Lord, I 
have done this, Lord, I deserve heaven. I have done all these things in your name. I deserve your kingdom. And then he says, depart from me. No, I want to get to heaven. I want to say, Lord, you have saved me. Like, Lord, you are good. Jesus, I need you and cling to him instead of this is what I did. My next question is, why do you think a legalistic faith is attractive to religious people? Yeah, there's definitely a few reasons. I think one is that it's familiar. If you look at all other religions, that's the the structure of it is it's, it's based on, on works and what you do. The other thing I think is, is our pride and our control. Mm-hmm. I think like I want to be in control of what happens to me afterwards. Yeah. And it's hard to release that control and really give that to Jesus. I'm going to take that last point and I'm going to run with it. The whole control idea. I think legalism all comes down to that is like, I want to be in control. Like you said, it's comfortable when we are in control and it's easy when everything goes our way, when we want it to go our way. We want to make God do what we want him to do and be who we want him to be. But in reality, the God we serve is a God who is in full control of our destiny. Not us. We do not even have the control. We want to think that we do, but we, we don't. We must submit our desire for control to his supreme control. James 4, 14 through 15 reminds us, control freaks, because I'm one of them, to let go by saying, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like a morning fog. It's here for a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. I think a lot of the times... As Christians, we want this five-step methodology on how to pursue certain areas of our spirituality, or we want a formula for how to become the, quote, good Christian. And a lot of sermons in today's culture even promote this type of walk with Jesus, where it's like five ways to a better spirituality, or five ways to a better prayer life, or five ways to a better marriage, or five ways to a better this, this, and that, that how he works fits a certain mold to our success spiritually. But according to that verse in James, if God wants it to happen, it will happen. It isn't God's control. I would also contend that the Holy Spirit doesn't work in this methodological way. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do we do more listening to the Spirit of God, which we can know through his word? Or do we listen to the spirit of religiosity and rule keeping, or even the spirit of the enemy? As we continue to listen to the Spirit of God, we are going to be living a life in opposition to our flesh. With that being said, it's not going to be easy. If you're going to try to live this Christian walk and you're constantly listening to the spirit of religiosity and rule keeping or the spirit of the enemy, I can promise you that you will eventually become very discouraged and burnt out in your walk. That's a fact. And I've I've been there. That's why most people give up is because they're listening to things that aren't of the spirit of God. And no wonder why they walk away. So when I walked away from the faith at one point, I was listening to things that weren't of the spirit. I felt as if I was like rule keeping what the world had to offer me seemed more appealing than having to keep these rules of what I thought Christianity was. But I was not meant to walk this walk alone, but with the power of the Holy Spirit in which legalism is not Holy Spirit led, but man led. I don't know. I just encourage you guys just if you feel like Christianity is a bunch of rule keeping, that's not listening to the Holy Spirit, because if you truly love God, you're going to want to do the things that the Lord is putting in your heart with joy, not with discouragement and almost grudgingly against God. As I talked about in my last episode on the joy of obedience, in my obedience to the Holy Spirit, I have joy. That's kind of my thoughts on why I think legalistic faith is attracted to religious people. It's easy to be in control, but it doesn't lead to the true fruit that God is calling us to in our lives. 
I guess this is kind of the last talking point that we could get into is how would you suggest talking to someone who falls into a legalistic mindset or thinks that they're good enough to get into heaven? Like what are some like what are, what are the ways you attempt that conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. In the same way you're asking for humility from them, you need to go at it with humility as well. You don't want to assume anything or puff yourself up as, as I'm, I'm better than this person. But then just finding out where their heart is at, really, I think. And, and then from that, you're able to discern like some challenges you can give them. There's one verse, Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9 says, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You got to figure out where they are. Why are they doing this? Why? What is their motive behind it that they, they really want to trust in it? A lot of times I think that we love sin. If I can set up a, a system of rules where I can still live my life in a, in a sinful way that doesn't change it, I'm going to do that, you know, as if I'm an illegalist. So figuring that out and then just challenging them in what they're trusting in, I think is pretty important. I guess what I'm about to say kind of relates to my call to action a bit. But personally, I would try my best to be rich in good works to that person. Just try to love them as much as I could. Jesus said in John 8, 34-36, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is a part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. I would always point to the goodness of God's grace and the freedom we have in Christ to not keep going forward in sin but to enjoy a life that is separated from the damaging effects of sin and the freedom I have in not having to keep laws that I am bound to. It's not that we have to act better than others, but pointing to the scriptures that proves God loves us, not because of our works or rule keeping. Also, this is huge, huge, huge thing. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. Our doing and our conversation should be in unison with prayer. We should be praying for that person but also praying that God gives us the wisdom to speak into that person's life. Everyone's story is unique and not every person is built the same in which these conversations should be spirit led instead of, like I mentioned earlier, having this methodology type approach to where, you know, I need to hit them with this certain verse and then afterwards say this and then no, it's not how it works. Just listen to spirit, pray for that person. So yeah, that's kind of the end of the talking points here on this episode on legalism. Jackson, did you have any other thoughts on legalism that you would like to add that you didn't get to mention in this conversation? Or do you have any like final remarks that you would like to add? One thing I'm thinking of here is just like on the flip side of, of legalism, you don't really want to abuse grace. It's kind of like you were talking about a second ago. You know, Romans 6 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sins that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died of sin still live in it? And so... Sometimes as Christians, it's, it can be tempting to say that the Romans 8, that nothing can separate us, so I might as well just live my life however I want. I'm saved. I don't have to worry about it. But like you said earlier as well, it's just there's a, there's a joy in obedience, and, and God's the, the creator, and he knows what's going to bring you joy most in this life, and, and that is being an obedient child of God. And I think what you are bringing up here is super important because we have to understand that God doesn't want us to be obedient for the sense of that makes God love us more, but it is for our best intention to live God's ways. It is for our flourishment as a humanity, not only to glorify God with our lives, but for the longevity of our lives, like God's ways are for our flourishment, people. 
because if we're living in sin, we're going to be listening to the spirit of the enemy and discouragement will come your way, like I mentioned earlier. So, which leads me into my call to action. I'm going to give you this little title and that is to learn to rest in God's grace. The meaning of grace is like an undeserved favor that is freely given. Like you didn't deserve God's favor, but he gave it to you freely. One of my favorite promises in the Bible is found in Romans 8.1. It reads, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? If you belong to Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him, you are no longer under condemnation. Condemnation meaning disapproval or worthy of punishment. When I had more of a legalistic framework of my faith, I really struggled with this feeling of condemnation. And maybe some of you can relate right now. You know, I felt as if I wasn't approved by God or he was constantly angry with me because of my slip ups. But this promise in Romans 8.1 states that we are no longer condemned in Jesus. In my legalistic framework, I thought I was responsible for the condition of my relationship status with God. But this is an unbiblical framework. The biblical framework is that no one deserves a relationship with God because of our shortcomings, but it is a free gift through Jesus. God loved us so much that he gave his only son as the perfect sacrifice so that when we place our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and to, to be the Lord of our life, God no longer sees us as worthy of condemnation, but he sees the holiness that has been placed on our lives through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our sin. So my challenge to you is to have this little mindset shift for if you are in Christ, right, is to live in a grateful state that you have received the greatest gift you didn't deserve instead of fearfully, anxiously, worrisome like mentality, making sure that you're trying to be the perfect Christian. Because in reality, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. The reason why we're Christians is because we admit we're screw ups instead of trying to think that we are right. So I'm going to kind of end this conversation with this. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, he responds in Matthew 22, 37 through 40 by saying, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the catch. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So this is what the religious and legalistic leaders of Jesus' time had messed up. They were so focused on doing and keeping of the Old Testament law and being self-righteous that they missed out on why we were given the law in the first place. The law showed us what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor. The religious people twisted the intent of the law and turned it into a way to achieve their own righteousness, but the purpose of the law was actually intended to show us that we all fall short and break God's perfect law at some point. The reality is we all fall short, and this must mean that we all need God's grace, and we all need to rest in God's grace. Jackson, you have any final thoughts? Any any words of encouragement for the people out there, man? It's just that, you know, it's it's Jesus' bloodshed that makes us clean and righteous, not our own works. So that's really what I want to take home if I'm listening to this podcast. All right, y'all. Well, that was the end of this conversation on legalism. I think this was super fruitful. And I think this you know, even had a little impact on my life because sometimes I need to learn how to rest in God's grace. So yeah, the agenda for the upcoming podcast, that's kind of you know up in the air right now. I'm moving out in a couple of weeks and I might have somebody on the podcast. I probably will just do one on my own. We will see. The setup might be a little different. It might be a little while before I put my next one out, but there will be a next one, Lord willing. 
this episode was super encouraging, super thankful to be in the presence of the Lord's people, reading God's word, being blessed with his presence. This is your host, Dylan Tuttle, with my boy Jackson here. We are out of here. Peace, y'all. Thank you, guys.